When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. New Scientist Weekly is brought to you in partnership with the Financial Times. The FT brings you stories that matter, not only in the world of business and finance, but also covering stories in science, technology, climate change, and more. Find out more at ft.com. Hello and welcome to a special edition of New Scientist Weekly. I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm podcast editor at New Scientist. And I'm Penny Sarchet, New Scientist news editor. Today we're going big on the coronavirus. We're going into the biology of the virus, what we know about its spread, what we can do now to minimise the impact of the outbreak and what the knock-on effects are likely to be. Joining us in the pod today is New Scientist reporter Donna Liu and special guest Adam Kucharski, who's an Associate Professor in Epidemiology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. By a weird coincidence, Adam has just published a book about the spread of disease called The Rules of Contagion. But first, Penny, you're going to update us. Right, so as of the 5th of March, uh, there's about 95,000 cases of coronavirus worldwide. Of those, 80,000 are in China. We've seen that the cases have really sort of plateaued out now in China, so it's really slowing down there. Um, But there are significant outbreaks in South Korea, Italy and Iran. Deaths are now approaching 3,300. Of those, uh, 2,900 are in Hubei, and we've seen around 100 each in Italy and Iran. One thing that's been big in the headlines this week is that we've really started to see the numbers tick up in the UK and the US, and uh, virus analysis suggests that COVID-19 may actually have been spreading for some weeks in Washington state, um, but it went undetected due to the way that the US was testing certain cases or who they were deciding to test. The UK also this week published its plan for fighting the coronavirus um, and it has several phases. And so, um, so far, the country has been really focused on containment. But we heard today that now we're moving much more into the delaying stage. So trying to slow the epidemic from uh, ballooning all at once. So there's a shifting emphasis and so what we haven't got yet, but the, the kind of end, of, the, uh, the later stage of mitigation will be things like closing schools, cancelling mass gatherings, uh, uh, working from home and, and that kind of thing. And, and all of the goal here really is to just delay the peak of infection until spring or summer when our hospitals are under less strain. Um, so that should mean there's more support available for those who develop severe COVID-19 symptoms. Another thing this week is that we're now starting to get more data. So uh, there have been quite a few studies and analyses coming through of um, thousands of cases that there have been in China. Uh, Also, people are really crunching the numbers on what happened on the Diamond Princess, this cruise ship that was quarantined um, outside of Japan. And that's giving us a clearer picture of, of what's happening with the infection. Adam, let's bring you in now. 
As we mentioned at the top, you're a mathematician and an epidemiologist, and you've just written a book about the spread of disease called The Rules of Contagion. I guess the first thing we want to ask you is, how much do we know about this virus now? Is there enough data to start understanding it better? Uh, yeah, we've got a lot more data coming through, particularly in the last couple of weeks. Initially, we were very reliant on uh, reports in China, and obviously there's uncertainty in how much case uh, counts there really were and kind of what that means about what the spread was, uh, was going on. But we're now getting multiple countries, so we can see that kind of signals that early growth is, is pretty consistent across many different settings now. I wanted to ask you about the death rate, which is something we've been trying to keep track of. So last week, the WHO um, was saying it was 0.7% throughout most of China. Um, this week, all the experts we spoke to were giving us about 1 in 100, 1%. And then suddenly the WHO came out again saying 3.4%. Where, where are we on that? There's, there's been a lot of numbers kicking around, and, and particularly it depends on, on what data you're using. So in an ideal situation, you want to get a load of cases that just shown symptoms, follow them up and see how many end up dying. Um, what is happening in real time is people are taking the number of cases there currently are and the number of deaths there are and looking at the kind of ratio. Um, but the problem, of course, is if you've got, say, you know, 100 deaths today, those people showed up as cases probably about three weeks ago. So you need to be looking back in time um, at how many cases there were and potentially what was underreported. So we see this in every outbreak, that um, particularly because the early data relies on severe cases in China, the initial uh, ratio might look quite low, but that will obviously creep up over time. And that's what we're seeing with these updated values. But of course, as that increases, I think now it's about 3 4%. That's not really reflective of the true risk, um, because a lot of those early cases were probably more severe than the ones that are now being picked up. So um, on the scale of like 0.7 to 3.4, is it likely to be somewhere in the middle? Um, a lot of the data now we've got from international um, outbreaks, for example, the Diamond Princess, where there was really intensive uh, detection, are suggesting that probably something in the 0.5 to 2% range is, is most plausible. I've seen a lot of people worrying about the fatality rate if you've got an underlying disease. And this has had people speculating that because the US has a lot more underlying disease than China, um, that the death rate could be higher in the US. And some people have been, you know, getting quite worried about this. Can you enlighten us? I think that's definitely a concern. A lot of the early um, evidence suggests that the most severe cases, fatal cases, are either in older age groups or in ones with pre-existing conditions. So as you say, it's not going to be the case that every population has has exactly the same pattern. Um, For example, countries with more pre-existing conditions, potentially more risk. Also, countries with much older populations, demographically, uh, we may see different um, ultimate fatality rates compared to what other countries may be getting. One thing um, that um, I've seen people going back and forth on is um, just how many people can have COVID-19 without um, showing strong symptoms or even knowing that they have it. Do we do we have an idea yet of how much asymptomatic or very mild cases there are? That's a really crucial question, and particularly if we're trying to understand what control measures might do, what groups have it, who's contributing to transmission. Um, again, from, from situations like Diamond Princess and these, these older populations, we're getting evidence potentially 40 to 60% of people might not show symptoms. Um, but the challenge, of course, is working out in younger groups. And I think until we have these kind of population-wide studies that look at how much background infection there was, it's going to be really tough to work out what those numbers are in younger groups. Do we have any idea why, um, in the people who who do get COVID-19, uh, the, there's such a wide variety in the severity of their cases? I think for a, a number of respiratory infections, we do see that diversity. Um, and even if you look at, for example, the age um, pattern of severity for seasonal flu, we see... Uh, particularly if you look between um, middle age to old age, you see that similar trend, although this is potentially many times more uh, severe. So you do see that that diversity in outcome for a lot of infections. Um, but I think for this, we're trying to work out 
particularly at the milder end of the scale, uh, what that proportion looks like. We've got a good handle on, on potentially people who are hospitalised, what happens, but for those kind of mild cases for people who are, who are children or in their 20s, it's really not quite clear yet. Going back to your day job, as it were, can you tell us how you measure how infections spread? What do we know about this one? Um, so one of the key values we use is what we call a reproduction number. So this is for, for each case you have, on average, how many more cases are they spreading it to? And that gives us a really good estimate of, of how transmission is changing over time. Um, for example, we had a, a study um, just out that shows that in China, um, in mid-January, each case will on average infecting a couple of others. And by the end of January, after all these control measures went in, that probably dropped uh, by about half. So it kind of almost slowed the epidemic to a, to a plateau in that, that one, two-week period. And we're seeing in Singapore and Hong Kong a similar level of reduction with control measures. But in Europe at the moment, our early analysis is suggesting uh, potentially places like it's like China was um, back in early January. But that goes to show what, how effective the control measures can be at slowing the spread. Exactly. In, in, certainly in China, in, in Hong Kong, Singapore, those containment and control measures uh, seem to have had a huge reduction in transmission. Working out exactly what's done what is a really big challenge because there's been a whole range of different things, social behaviour, school closures, other kind of quarantine measures. Um, but it does seem that if you have those very dramatic changes in interactions, you can reduce transmission, which intuitively makes sense if it's spread between interactions. One thing that's really caught my interest this week is how you decide which cases to test and which ones you don't. And it, it looks like the US policy, that they, they may have missed community spread for six weeks or so. How, how do you decide who you should test and, and when? One of the, the key things early on is if your definition of cases is very narrow. Um, for example, early definitions of cases were people who had a, a travel history to Wuhan, for example. So you're only going to be looking for those individuals and potentially you're going to miss um, contacts or other people who've been exposed um, in other ways. Uh, so particularly in the UK, for example, we've seen the extent of testing early on is really on the scale of what's going on in Italy and South Korea. But we've got far fewer cases because we've been more extensively looking for potential infections. I think you have this problem early in an outbreak that if you're not looking for something you're, you're definitely not going to find it. We've seen um, this week the UK is starting to move away from the sort of containment phase into the delaying or slowing it down phase. Um, does that mean really that the UK and many other countries really are going to get the epidemic? It's just a matter of how quickly and when now? Um, I think it's, it's likely in the UK that we've got some, some transmission going on. There's been a, a number of cases, not a large number, but a few who, who are not linked to transmission chains that suggest that's happening. And certainly in the US, there's a lot of evidence that there's undetected transmission. Um, I think once that happens, contact tracing in small numbers is very manageable. But once those numbers increase, just the, the amount of effort required and the benefit of doing that decreases very dramatically. And moving to that that kind of slowing down mitigation is going to be more effective at changing the shape of the outbreak. And just a question that I know a lot of people are wondering about um, businesses, holidaymakers, the Olympic Committee. Do we have any idea when this is likely to peak globally? Like how long is this going to be going on? It's, it's incredibly difficult to say at the global scale because obviously it very much depends on, on countries and, and what restrictions and what's going on there. But I think within, um, say, a city or a small area, if you have this kind of outbreak that's uncontrolled because of the growth rates we're seeing, we'd probably expect a peak in the order of three, four months. Um, so that's something that's uncontrolled. Of course, if you have somewhere um, like in China or other areas that have very dramatic control measures that flatten the outbreak, that could potentially prolong the epidemic, but it would have the benefit of reducing that kind of maximum demand on healthcare. 
Um, one thing that I've been talking about with friends and colleagues is a lot of people have been asking just how worried should we really be if 80% of cases aren't severe? Is this just a cold that's sort of sweeping the globe? Or uh, why is everyone getting sort of, so sort of up in arms about it? What, what would you say to that? Um, I think this is many, many times more severe than flu. Um, one of the things to emphasise with, with these average severity estimates is there's a huge skew with age. So it might overall be relatively low if, if you're in your teens, 20s, potentially. Um, but people who are in their 50s, 60s onwards, um, were looking at far more severe um, outcomes. The other thing worth noting is that this lag, potentially about three weeks between um, cases becoming ill and deaths. So if you get to the situation, as some countries are, where you're seeing a lot of severe cases and deaths, that suggests you have a huge amount of uncontrolled infection. And by that point, it's very hard to make those control measures. So I think we need to think now when we're seeing initial cases appear, rather than further down the line where it gets far more severe. And do we actually know what the incubation time is now between catching it and showing symptoms if you do show um, symptoms? For most people, uh, the estimates are in the, the sort of five to seven day range. There's obviously a bit of variability. The one reason we have this two week quarantine um, in some countries is that that's the, the sort of upper bound of what might be, be plausible. But most people within a week would probably show some symptoms if they are going to. Is there anything that's keeping you awake at night at the moment? What's, what's really worrying you at the moment? I think one of the the most concerning things and certainly the big transition in people's attitudes in the last last week or two has just been the extent of undetected transmission that can happen. Um, I think particularly what we're seeing in some areas where the first case that's appearing is a death. Um, if you do a rough calculation, um, say it took about three weeks for that person to die after appearing as a case. So three weeks ago, that person appears as a case. Say one in 100 people die. So three weeks ago, there were 100 cases. And it's had three weeks, potentially doubling every week. So you're looking at hundreds, if not a thousand cases that have been completely undetected. That's incredibly concerning if that's happening in multiple areas. So when in a country like the UK, uh, for example, might we expect that schools start closing down? We all have to start working from home if we can. And and that kind of really wide scale shutdown type stuff that we've seen in Hubei. Um, I think it's really going to depend on where we are in the outbreak. We're not at a stage yet where we've got huge numbers of cases. There may well be some undetected transmission, but it's not on, on a huge scale at this point. And because a lot of these measures um, do have a social impact and an economic impact, I don't think it makes sense to be doing them when there's not a need to. Uh, We may well get to the stage where government advice is encouraging dramatic changes in in daily routine. And I think at that point, people need to take that on board. But but certainly don't be making those really kind of cumbersome changes to your lifestyle when it's not at the point you need to yet. And so what what will be the sort of sign to the government when to make that call? How will they know it's the time to move into that mitigation phase? Um, I think they'll be looking at a number of factors. Um, So it won't just be simply looking at case counts. Um, One key value is how many of the new cases appearing um, aren't linked to things we know about. So a lot of the new cases that appeared in the last couple of days um, had travel history to Italy. It was very clear where they got infected. We did have a handful of cases where it's not clear. Um, And for example, when that proportion gets larger and it's clear that more of our outbreak is undetected, um, for example, when genetic evidence suggests that we might have multiple um, clusters of transmission happening, all of those things would feed into a decision that we're probably at a point where containment's less effective. One thing that I know there's a lot of interest in is um, whether uh, the warmer months, when the Northern Hemisphere gets spring and summer, whether this will be like a seasonal flu and, and stop spreading. Do we have any idea whether that will happen it's not clear yet how strong that, that temperature signal is. Um, one thing that could potentially make a difference is obviously school holidays. In 2009, in the, the swine flu uh, pandemic, we saw a big decline in transmission over the holidays and it resurged in the autumn. Uh, but that brings up the issue of how important are children. Um, in, in that flu pandemic in 2009, children were more susceptible than adults, which probably amplified that, that signal. 
So it may well be in that the epidemic we see some effects of school holidays in the summer, but maybe not to the magnitude it was in 2009. Speaking as an Antipodean, as the Southern Hemisphere moves into the winter months, could we see um, you know, increased spread or, or, I guess, difficulty in detecting COVID-19 versus, say, the regular flu season? I think the interaction with flu is is certainly making it harder currently in the Northern Hemisphere because a lot of these symptoms in the early stages aren't particularly distinctive. Uh, an additional concern is just the burden on, on health systems. That flu season, you have a lot of people with respiratory infections in hospital. Um, and that's one of the reasons, certainly in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, we're, we're hoping that we'll be able to slow it to get out of this, this period of the year. It's interesting you said that um, children were more susceptible to swine flu, but they seem to be less susceptible to COVID-19. Have we got any idea why that is? Uh, for swine flu, um, the virus was similar to one that had circulated a few decades earlier. So you had older groups that had some pre-existing immunity. Uh, one of the things that isn't quite clear with COVID at the moment is the early signals suggest infants in very young groups aren't at significant risk, whereas for flu that would be the case. So it's, we're still trying to work out whether that's a genuine signal, but if that is a case, uh, then it suggests there is some difference between these viruses. Do we know if children are catching it, they just don't seem to have symptoms? That's a really key question. Uh, at the moment, there is some evidence that children are getting infected um, from, from Asia. But the, the key point, of course, is, is that infection translating into transmission? Uh, I saw a news article the other day that someone, I think it was in Hong Kong, had passed the infection onto their dog, apparently. Is kind of this interspecies uh, transmission something that we might expect? Or is this just a, a one-off case that we probably um, shouldn't take too much stock of? Uh, so I don't think all the details that have emerged yet, but certainly for other outbreaks we've seen. I think in Ebola there was a, a case of transmission to an animal. But um, really there's very good evidence this virus is transmitting efficiently between humans. So even if there is this odd transmission to an animal, uh, I think we've got more than enough to worry about in terms of the human-to-human spread. Adam, thanks so much for coming in and enlightening us all. Thank you. Time out. Today's episode is sponsored by The Financial Times. We're living in a world of innovation and fragmentation. The FT identifies the stories that matter, like whether a green society can keep consuming and looking at which technological trends will shape the decade. We all know we have to do something about the climate crisis, but it's a bit more tricky figuring out exactly what that is. So I was drawn to an article in the FT, How to Heal Our Planet, highlighting four new books on climate change, which come up with tangible answers. I read an article in the FT this morning about a woman in China who was almost sent to quarantine because of a faulty infrared thermometer. Authorities in the country are using them to see if people have coronavirus, and it's a really fascinating read. Keep up to date with the FT to find out more. The Financial Times is your trusted guide to the new normal. Join the debate at ft.com. Now it's time for Life Form of the Week. This is usually when we big up a life form that we think deserves more love. But this week it's not one that's particularly lovable. That's right, it's COVID-19. Yeah, we've heard a lot about the infection and what it's been doing worldwide. um, But what about the actual thing itself? Yeah, so if you scale it up, imagine a big balloon made of fat. And covering the balloon are these projections. Um, These are protein projections and they form a corona crown around it and that's what that's how it gets its name a coronavirus um and the spikes of protein on the balloon these are the keys that how it locks into the cells in our in our airways uh, the epithelial skin cells in our airways and tries to sort of wheedle its way in 
Inside the balloon is a very, very long length of RNA, so not DNA. This is RNA. This is the single-stranded version of the genetic material. Uh, Coronaviruses have very long genomes, and usually this makes them quite vulnerable to mutation because it breaks up quite a lot when they're replicating. Um, But so far, the mutation rate of the COVID-19 virus doesn't seem to be very high, and that's a good thing because it means... The big fear with viruses normally is they mutate and become more deadly, but this doesn't seem to be happening with the COVID-19 virus. Although I guess it also means it it won't evolve to be milder and and sort of fizzle out as the opposite. It might mean that as well, Mm. yeah. What happens is the virus sticks to a cell in your lung and forces its way inside, and then it uncoats, so the kind of balloon pops kind of thing. The RNA comes out and it hijacks the machinery of the cell to make its make copies of itself so the rna comes out and it starts instructing this host cell to make more bits of um, balloon coating and more bits of stuff that it needs to make more viruses Um, and then it assembles the whole thing together and all these little baby viruses then just get coughed back out into the world to go and uh, go and spread some more Um, the other interesting thing about the virus is its size so it's a large virus it's about 120 nanometers in diameter which is doesn't sound very big um, given that human hair is 75,000 nanometers in diameter but for a virus it's big and that makes it quite vulnerable to soap so um, it's quite easy actually to inactivate this thing and the action of soap on the on this fatty balloon when you wash your hands if you wash your hands properly uh, can deactivate the virus we say deactivate the virus we don't say kill it because it's it's arguable that the thing's alive in the first place and there's a big argument about um, the definition of life and this is a kind of guilty secret that lies at the heart of biology that we don't have a good definition of what life even is uh, this is a big problem for NASA when they go to Mars and they want to look for life because no one can actually agree what it is well anyway we've picked it for our life form of the week <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, I, I bent the rules a bit <laughs> Without taking away from the human impact of this outbreak, let's now take a look at the impact that such an epidemic could have on the global economy and and what that might mean. Donna, you've been looking into this. So there have been concerns about a potential slowdown for weeks now, uh, but last week global markets crashed. Uh, At one point, about $5 trillion were wiped off the markets. The week's decline was actually the biggest since the global financial crisis in 2008. A report by McKinsey uh, recently suggested that businesses should prepare for either a recession this year or a global slowdown, with the potential for a quick recovery looking like the least probable option. Uh, Oxford Economics, a UK research firm, also predicts that if a pandemic lasts for six months, it could knock $1.1 trillion off uh, expected global growth of GDP. The projections are quite dire and institutions have responded accordingly. The US Federal Reserve announced an emergency interest rate cut on Tuesday and the Hong Kong Monetary Authority has also followed suit, essentially with the aim of preventing a recession. The World Bank also announced on Wednesday a package of up to $12 billion for countries who are trying to cope with the the impacts of an outbreak. I guess it's also, uh, as you mentioned, Penny, important to keep in mind that these are 
people's livelihoods on the line. It's it's businesses that are unable to stay afloat financially or um, forced to shut because of quarantine. Uh, g- given how rapidly coronavirus has spread internationally, it's it's unsurprising that we've seen a spate of cancellations of different major events, um, including the Mobile World Congress in Barcelona, the London Book Fair, uh, and Google has announced that they're cancelling their quote-unquote physical version um, of their I.O. event, which is a big developer event that normally happens in May. Uh, And the growing concern now is whether the Tokyo Olympics will be affected or postponed. As we've been trailing a lot in New Scientist, this is a key year for climate and environmental treaties. and for action on climate change. And how's the virus going to impact on that? Well, this is a a major worry because 2020 is a very big year for these events. Uh, There's a couple of major uh, ones taking place, one being the Convention on Biological Diversity. It's a meeting where the UN and heads of governments get together to set new targets to protect uh, animals and plant life globally. It was planned for October uh, in Quinming in Yunnan province in China. Uh, Convention organisers have officially said that it's still going forward, uh, but there has been talk of it potentially being relocated to Montreal or, or Bonn. Whatever happens, it's really vital that this does go ahead because the Aichi targets for biodiversity conservation expire this year and they're up for renegotiation. These targets aimed to halt uh, the loss of biodiversity within a decade, but unfortunately uh, countries have been failing miserably in meeting their targets. Uh, The other big conference is COP26, the 2020 UN Climate Change Conference, which is set for Glasgow in November. This will be the most important climate change meeting since the Paris Agreement in 2015. Uh, But a problem here is that Italy is officially a co-host and the key pre-COP26 summit is planned for Milan in late September. So whether or not this will go ahead remains to be seen. At the same time, there's also concern that preparations are being hampered as governments divert their attention to emergency coronavirus measures. But there are some silver linings at the same time. Um, Air travel is anticipated to drop by about 4.7% globally this year. And on a related note, NASA has observed that uh, over China in the first two months of this year, there's been a dramatic drop in nitrogen dioxide air pollution. And this is largely because of the factories that have shut down during the lockdowns. On Wednesday this week, the European Commission also put forward the European Climate Law, which would make the target of net zero carbon emissions by 2050 legally binding for all its member states. And the law is part of the European Green Deal, which includes a 100 billion euro package uh, to help fossil fuel dependent countries transition to greener technologies. I guess the tricky thing with things like um, the decline in air travel and that kind of thing um, or um, any declines in manufacturing and pollutants is that in the short term that looks quite good but we don't know if in the long time the effects of having a recession it could the global priority could again become about pulling the world out of a recession and not actually facing up to action on climate change so I guess at this point we just don't really know. Exactly. In the short term, it looks like a a good thing, but it's so uncertain as to what the future outcome will be. Now's the time that we find a science fiction example of something happening in the real world. And given that we've got a special edition about the coronavirus today, I'm guessing there's some virus link here, Rowan? (laughs) Yep. Today's sci-fi alert is about the crossover of a virus from animals to humans and its rampaging spread throughout the population, as depicted in the Steven Soderbergh film Contagion. Um, 
possibly this is a medical thriller, not really a sci-fi film. Um, if, if we wanted a pure sci-fi film, we might do 28 Days Later. Um, and that was like a zombie virus or a rage-inducing virus. But anyway, Contagion, it was praised by uh, scientists, actually, for the way it uh, depicted what happens in an outbreak. And as we've been hearing from Adam, and um, what scientists have to do to learn about viruses. Uh, the scientists in the movie find it hard to culture the fictional virus called MEV1. Um, and we hear a lot about how many times people uh, touch their face. Uh, so there's, there's real-world stuff that we're hearing about now. The movie starts with Gwyneth Paltrow's character catching the virus and inadvertently spreading it around, and it shows authorities scrambling to trace all the people she's been in contact with, again, just like we've been seeing with coronavirus. In the movie, the scientists discover that the virus has crossed from bats to pigs to humans, um, and it's actually based on a real-life virus called the Nipah virus, uh, but there are lots of big differences. In real life, the Nipah virus has a very high death rate of 50 to 75%. In the movie, they put that the death rate at 30%. And with coronavirus right now, we're looking at a much lower fatality rate, less than 2%. We think it's going to stabilise that. Um, in the movie, things get completely out of control. There's a lot of societal panic and entire cities are shut down. Chicago gets shut down. Um, and the resolution comes with vaccine development which is probably not going to be the ultimate resolution uh, with coronavirus. Yeah, hopefully we'll get a vaccine um, maybe within a year, but that will be helpful once the virus has already spread around the world just to help control it in future. Yeah. Uh, a couple of other things I really like about this. The military ask if uh, someone's weaponized bird flu and Lawrence Fishburne just looks at them and says, someone doesn't have to weaponize bird flu. The birds are doing it. That's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> the birds are weaponizing it. And the tagline uh, is, no one is immune to fear <laughs> oh dear <laughs> and finally let's go over some of the advice on what we can do as individuals and remind us why it's a good thing to slow the spread of the virus yeah so if I was going to ask you uh, what the internet's latest obsession would be what would you say the unlikely candidate, I think, would be hand-washing. <laughs> yeah. And as a hygiene freak, this is really great that finally everyone is really sharing my interests. <laughs> so um, I've been looking a lot into hand-washing this week. Um, you can't move for jokes on social media about um, uh, the songs you're supposed to Out sing. Outbound spot. Yeah, all the things that you can do to make sure that you wash your hands for long enough. So, Rowan, what was your favourite one? My, mine was out damn spot. Lady Macbeth's soliloquy uh, about uh, getting the blood off her hands at that, that uh, that's for thespians you yeah go through that feel very appropriate but maybe quite hard to remember i know a lot of people who are sick of singing happy birthday twice while they wash their hands so um lots of jokes about this and politicians really are going quite hard on it they keep telling us it's the most important thing that we can all do to but, to stop the spread of the virus but is it is that true yeah so i find that hard to believe i mean if you're going to talk about the most important things i would say maybe don't travel to an area where there's an, a major outbreak um if you're ill stay at home uh if you're, if you have to go out and about, cover your coughs and your sneezes. I, on my personal priority list, those would all be on the top. But hand washing is an easy and inexpensive thing to tell people. So politicians have really gone in for it. Hand washing just sounds like good hygiene. Is there any evidence to show that people aren't doing it normally? Does it take a, a global pandemic for the, people to wash their hands? Yeah, so this is something that there have been quite a lot of studies on uh, where like researchers will set up a camera and, and they'll sort of observe how often people wash their hands after the toilet. Um, these kinds of studies always make you feel quite queasy. So um, I looked up one yesterday in New Zealand. It found that 87% of people wash their hands after using the bathroom. That's actually better than I 
I was expecting compared to some studies that I've seen. But only 72% actually use soap and soap is important. And on average, people wash their hands for only around eight and a half seconds. Which is much less than the recommended time. Yeah. So um, I've tried yesterday and I couldn't find a source for where um, the 20 seconds evidence comes from. So listeners, if anyone knows where that comes from, I'd love to know what the evidence is. I'm Penny Sachet on on Twitter. But but that is the really strong recommendation is that um, we should be doing it for much longer. And and the reason um, you want to wash your hands um, thoroughly and effectively is that you, you're using soap to destroy the viruses um, that are susceptible to it. Like you mentioned, Rowan, coronavirus is one of them. But also you're just loosening everything up on your hands and giving it time to then get washed off of your hands when you're using the water afterwards and and then the important thing after that is that you really should dry them as well because while your hands are still wet they're still susceptible to picking things mm. up and so paper towels are recommended over um, air drying because that takes longer and, and it's not quite as good for that. And what about hand sanitizers because they've sold out in all my shops near me? Yeah, um, so there's been a lot of talk about hand sanitizers. I actually think part of the appeal with hand sanitizers is they feel more medical and like special. So when there's something that's suddenly scaring people, it, it feels like it's going to be more effective um, than hand washing. Actually, soap and water is the best thing you can do. Um, but at times when uh, you can't wash your hands, get to a sink, um, some hand sanitizers are effective. So what you want to be looking for is ones that are high alcohol. So that's at least 60%. And so what hand sanitizers can do is they can deactivate or slow the growth of a lot of microbes um, but you're not actually sort of washing them off your hands and there's also various types of virus that aren't really susceptible to the hand sanitizers so I think um, some types of cold and norovirus uh, you're not going to get much help from a hand sanitizer at all so whilst hand sanitizers are working on the coronavirus um, it, generally speaking good hygiene comes from washing your hands and a lot of people don't use hand sanitizers correctly so you have to make sure you use enough and then you have to rub it all over your hands until it dries so you can't like wipe the excess off with a tissue or or only use a little bit so that it's easier so um hand sanitizer works to an extent and it's very useful when you can't wash your hands but it's not as good as soap and water that's all for this week thanks for listening and just a reminder you can read all about these stories and more at newscientist.com and we have a special issue of the magazine devoted to the coronavirus this week Uh, if you'd like to subscribe there's a special offer for podcast listeners only get 20 percent off a subscription to new scientists using the code pod 20 yes just enter pod 20 at the checkout on the website to get your subscription discount do get in touch with us on Twitter at New Scientist Pod or email us at podcast at newscientist.com. And if you've enjoyed our episode, don't forget to tell your friends all about us. New episodes go live each Friday. Do subscribe to the show at the usual place you get your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye and keep washing your hands. <laughs> goodbye. Bye. This is a Right Angles production. You can find out more by visiting rightangles.global. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.